And welcome back. We're on the 10th episode of the wildly successful Domestic Yak Podcast. And after the meteoric rise and fame of our Jason Kenny deep dive series, I only figured it was time for me to step out of the shadows and stop making dumbass comments in response to Ed's uh, well-informed research. And it was time for me to bring my knowledge and uh, expertise to the forefront. How do you feel about that, Ed? Well, I'm really excited to see what you've come up with. I'm quite curious. I have no idea what what topic we're going to be covering today. And after the the success of the Jason Kenny series, which is, if I'm not mistaken, now on the NDP's mandatory reading list. Yeah, I'm really I'm really excited. Yeah. So essentially, um, we have a lot of information to cover. And what I'm going to try and do is frame things from a sort of a narrative where I'm going to kind of take you along the journey that I went along. But then I'm going to bring in some additional sources for context. And my goal is to kind of uh, present to you all this information in context so that once we've reached that point of uh, total comprehension and understanding, then we can have some sort of intelligent debate because we have like a bunch of different issues happening. Like at the center of all these technology problems, which, spoiler, it's a technology problem. Oh, no, I know nothing the, about the, technology. Middle, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The middle of all these technology problems is often usually an ethical problem. It's usually like, what do our ethics and morals think is right or wrong in this situation? And where does the law come in and where does the law not come in? So I will start at the very beginning from where it all began. The other day I was browsing the internet and I came across an article from The Verge published on December 23rd talking about how Trump had actually used his presidential veto power to uh, force this bill to not go through. This was a $740 billion defense bill, and he did this in retaliation to his complaints about Section 230. He's essentially trying to force people to uh, bend to his demands, and so he has vetoed this bill in retaliation for Section 230 not being revisited in Congress. So I thought to myself, I need to find out what Section 230 is about. It must be a big deal if Donald Trump is putting up such a stink. So I remember that Trump was quite upset that he couldn't just put people on blast on Twitter as the president. And I think that has something to do with either that section or either that defense bill. I saw some headlines that were like, Trump is trying to uh, take away the military's coin purse so he can spread misinformation on Twitter. So we're going into American politics today, eh? That's just going to be great. Great for me and my, my mental health. Oh yeah, you better believe we're going into United States politics. And Section 230 is actually a piece of legislation that is a part of the Communications Decency Act, which was originally published you know, back in ye olden times of 1934, and then it was updated in 1996. And I believe in 1996 is when Section 230 was uh, actually added into this act. Now, Donald Trump is quite upset about Section 230 because they've been uh, mean to him on Twitter. Some of his tweets have been uh, suspended or deleted, and other times his tweets have been prefaced with a label, like, this tweet may contain misinformation or uh, may not be coming from an expert, something like that. So essentially, uh, Twitter's been doing some moderation to try and let people know that no, uh, the, this man who suggests that drinking bleach might be the solution for the coronavirus does not, in fact, know what he's talking about, and you should probably not take him seriously. Yeah, well, his um, his whole thing is that he's against censorship on some of these platforms, and from like a, a libertarian viewpoint, or from a viewpoint where you say that we have absolute freedom of speech, these messaging boards are a utility that people have access to, and you're not allowed to censor them. But then again, you get the question of what is a private company allowed to do under the law with their own service? Exactly. You're getting right to the core of it. And we're going to see later on as we develop this podcast episode that that's just sort of like the center of this debate, which is how much censorship should happen. And is it censorship or is it moderation? Depends what side of the fence you're on. So the 26 words from Section 230C2 that everyone likes to quote are... No provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be treated as the publisher or speaker of any information provided by another information content provider. So 
A lot of people have said that those words are kind of obtuse and hard to follow. Maybe you understood it. Uh, in the sources for this episode, we're going to post a link to the, the American government. That's exactly where I got Section 230 from. I was actually able to download the entire Communications Decency Act and look through it because there was some other contextual information that I think helped give me more understanding than just reading, you know, 230C1. So all I know is that the internet was in its peak form in 1996, and it's only gone downhill from there. So any of these lawmakers that are over the age of 70 that are making this law in the late 90s clearly understood exactly what they were doing and what technology it was. It's not like we currently have senators in the United States that don't know how to use email and brag about it. Uh, but I, I got mixed up in some of that legal, legal jargon. Could you simplify it for me? Well, you know, Ed, like any good millennial, the first thing I did is I jumped onto the internet and went to YouTube. I need to find a video so somebody could explain Section 230 to me like I was five years old. And while I didn't find an Eli 5 for Section 230, I did find a TED Talk video done by Jess Myers in 2019 that explains most of Section 230 in the first half of the video, and then the second half of the video talks about some other things or conclusions which we will get to. Now, going back to the Communications Decency Act, they were surprisingly progressive. Now, this was probably as a result of some lawsuits over some internet service providers that caused them to actually go back to the D Communications Act and update it. That's why we have this revision in 1996. And they were surprisingly progressive because they were able to see where the internet was going. They looked in their crystal ball and they saw big platforms, big services. They saw a lot of people using it. They knew that internet was going to be the hub of information and exchange of ideas. And they put in some protections uh, in this act that allowed people to not be sued over the content that's on their platforms. So if you create a platform or a website where people can put their own user-generated content on it, if somebody puts hate speech on that platform under Section 230, you're not liable for that hate speech they put on the platform. People could take you to court all day long, but they're never going to win because Section 230 protects you and says, no, you're not the speaker or the author of other user-generated content that shows up on your website or platform. So this is great for people that want to make a business online that relies on user content. Yeah, or at least that they don't hold the users liable. Because I'm trying to think of what this would mean. And back in the late 90s, with that, I think that what they're trying to get at is if someone posts their manifesto on their blog, they don't want Shaw or Telus to be held responsible for hosting that web server, right? Like they don't want whoever's like, if someone's making a chat room, and someone's uh, attracting uh, Nazis to their to their chat room. The chat room itself shouldn't be held liable if it's just like a meet friends and hang out type of chat room, right? Like it's you're 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 cutting it away. So hopefully, this doesn't inf uh, require enforcement. It's up to the purview of the private the private industry, but it's they're not legally required to enforce themselves or their discussions that go on on their platform, right? Yeah, you're very astute, Ed. What you're getting at is under the protections of Section 230, you're not required to moderate your content unless it's involving intellectual property, right? But at the same time, even though you don't have to moderate it or filter your content, there's also no restrictions that say you have to filter your content fairly if you choose to. So you have a you have a right to censor or to not censor, to moderate or not to moderate. It's all the platform holder's decision. Now, I wanted to mention some of these premises that they put in this act that I think are worth mentioning because I think they're going to be relevant when we're talking about whether Section 230 is still relevant here today. So here are some of the findings that Congress published before they actually covered this actual piece of policy. So number one. The rapidly developing array of internet and other interactive computer services available to individual Americans represents an extraordinary advance in availability of educational and informational resources to our citizens. Number two, these services offer users a great degree of control over the information that they receive, as well as potential for even greater control in the future as technology develops. 
Number three, the internet and other interactive computer services offer form for the true diversity of political discourse, unique opportunities for cultural development, and a myriad avenues for intellectual activity. Number four, the internet and other interactive computer services have flourished to the benefit of all Americans with a minimum of government regulation. Number five, Increasingly, Americans are relying on interactive media for a variety of political, educational, cultural, and entertainment services. So, based on these findings, here's the policies. Number one, to promote the continued development of the internet and other interactive computer services and other interactive media. Number two, to preserve the vibrant and competitive free market that presently exists for the internet and other interactive computer services unfettered by federal or state regulation. Now, remember number two, because they are saying that it's a vibrant and competitive free market. And I think that that may not be the case in 2020 anymore. And then number three, to encourage the development of technologies which maximize user control over what information is received by individuals, families, and schools who use the internet and other interactive computer services. And then number four and five actually cover protecting children to make sure they're not served inappropriate material. And then number five, just covering some harassment and abuse online. Yeah, they've really put in a situation in which you say, I want to access a creator's media. You have to go to YouTube. I want to access this. I want to access Joe Rogan. You have to go to Spotify. They've really showcased how the Wild West, in a short period of time, 25 years, 30 years through the history of the internet, gets eaten up by these big sharks and then they can fuck over any other small fish in the pond it's yeah. super easy and that's exactly what happens when you have uh, a long stage bit of capitalism and in, in, in my opinion you start off everyone's at a breakneck there's a lot of success stories and then it settles into this hierarchy it's very difficult to change that hierarchy yeah and so then as this uh, section 230 goes on, you come to the part that says protection for good Samaritan, in quotes, uh, blocking and screening of offensive material. And that's where you have, uh, you know, C1, which is the treatment of publisher or speaker. And that exact quote that I read out to you about, you shall not be treated as the speaker or author of this material that's on your platform. Um, and then it talks about the civil liability. So no provider or user of an interactive computer service shall be held liable on account of um, any action voluntarily taken in good faith to restrict access or availability of material that the provider or user considers to be obscene, lewd, lavicious, filthy, excessively violent, harassing, or otherwise objectionable. Um, and then number B is uh, any action taken to enable or make available to information uh, content providers or others, the technical means to restrict access to material described in paragraph one. So anyways, it, it basically gives um, neutrality. It's saying that if you run your platform, you can run it the way that you want. You can choose to filter and show content, or you can choose to not filter and not show content. You can do whatever you want. There's a couple little amendments to this, like there's some protections for in IP for intellectual property. And as uh, we're about to talk about in the YouTube video, there was a new act that also made additional restrictions on the internet. But as far as most people are concerned, this section 230 is really what paved the way for um, companies like Facebook and Google to rise up. And um, there's this lady named Jess Myers who really just strongly argues that without section 230, the internet would be a very different place today. Yeah, absolutely. You can imagine that if you get a bunch of drunk college students on your the Facebook as it's being created and it's just used for people to sleep with each other and one guy says something offensive and Facebook's held liable for the offensive thing that he said or you don't have startups that are capable of scouring over everything that your users are saying even in a public forum and now all of a sudden they're held accountable because they chose not to censor it or they didn't get to it in time yeah it's absurd. so the the first video that i found was a ted talk video by jess myers and this was from 2019. so she goes uh at length and explains text section 230 but then she goes further so she argues that this new act that was published called fosta is not only 
not accomplishing what it set out to do, but it's also making the internet worse. And FOSTA was a house bill known as the Fight Online Sex Trafficking Act, which was to try and stop sex traffickers and, and whatever and, and sex workers from being on these platforms and requiring these uh, media companies and different platforms to actually moderate content regarding the sex trade. You always know that whenever Congress puts forward a bill and it's called the Fight Against Sex Traffickers Bill, there's some fucked up shit in there. If they're ever like, save the kittens the bill, or let's punch Nazis in the face the bill, you need to take a closer look at it because there's something wrong because no one would put forward something and go, oh shit, I really need to have people have political suicide if they get in front of a crowd and say, I am against the fight the sex traffickers bill because of yeah and then no everyone and, stops listening right like so there has to be something uh, well when you talk about any bill in the states you know that it's very common that they'll slip other things into the bill but when you have a bill like fosta it's very dangerous because this bill i i believe and i could be misspoken but i believe it would be a modification to the communications decency act so it's not like they're changing the first amendment but Whenever they go back in time and they retcon or they add things on to some of these basic charters and acts that they passed in, the, in, in, in previous years, previous decades, it can be very cascade effect, right? Like you've got this delicate web of laws and rules that are tied together and, and you know that legal precedence is a thing in the States. So when you have a change, even a well-intentioned one, it can really create the wrong effect. And that's what Jess Myers argues. So she talks about how um, essentially this FOSTA bill created uh, a precedent for the government or other people to sue or uh, engage in litigation against these platforms and companies for not policing that content. So essentially, if a sex worker is advertising herself on Facebook and Facebook doesn't take action against her, uh, Facebook can be fined in the United States for not, you know, adhering to that FOSTA bill. So now, so what the FOSTA? Sorry, the FOSTA bill ensures that you don't advertise sex work. Um, I haven't looked into the specific details of it. Um, there's more information about it and and what it does and doesn't do. But the the summary, the gist of it is that if you're an online sex worker or sex trafficker. It basically just requires that, uh, you know, these platform holders, right? So in section 230, right, we talked about how the uh, information uh, platform holder is not responsible for their content. FOSTA changes that. FOSTA says, no, you are responsible for the content. So in the same way... So you don't mean sex worker, you mean someone that is taking advantage of someone else in a sexual sense, sexual As far as I'm aware pornography or trafficking like an illegal act as far as i'm aware they don't then facebook would be held accountable they don't distinguish between a sex trafficker and a sex worker because as far as they're concerned everything where you're in the sex industry unless you're a porn star is illegal so if you are selling sex for money it is illegal um and so i'm pretty sure that as far as companies like facebook and twitter are concerned they don't distinguish between someone who's a sex trafficker and someone who's a sex worker if you are advertising or soliciting the sale of sex or or, or sexual favors for money you're going to get kicked off this platform and i see that you're doing research in the background there. oh you mean in real life in real life um committing committing acts of prostitution and advertising for acts of prostitution online would get you kicked off because I'm just thinking of of a woman promoting her only fans on Facebook that that technically is probably okay however you you'd probably still get in some trouble with it so like the thing is with section 230 there was a provision for intellectual property rights so as you know if you upload you know a song onto YouTube that's not yours um, it'll get flagged Right. There's algorithms now that will automatically identify that song. They'll put ads on it or they'll block it. Since like the beginning of time, you essentially couldn't really get away with putting content that wasn't yours in a musical sense on YouTube. It would always get flagged or taken down. 
and that was good for uh, musicians, right? Like, uh, imagine in the early days of YouTube, you're a musician who didn't have that YouTube account yet. Somebody else can upload your song onto YouTube. They can put ads on it and they can make thousands or, or you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars off of the views on your song, your video. So people can profit off your material. So there was a provision in section 230 for IP for copyright stuff. But then this new FOSTA bill was passed that allowed uh, another Pandora's box to open in terms of moderation. So what Jess Myers gets at is because there are these very expensive fines, if you do not moderate the content related to sex trafficking and sex workers, you're going to get put out of business. So she argues that this is stifling competition. This is stifling innovation that the new players in the online services games cannot afford to have an entire section of their company dedicated to moderation or the, uh, you know, the very expensive practice of building the technology to auto moderate. So she thinks that if we keep the internet as open and unregulated as possible, that the companies will act morally. And she, she thinks even Facebook, she thinks Facebook, Twitter, Amazon, she thinks these big companies, these big platforms and services, if they have as little restrictions as possible online, that they are going to act in the best interest of humanity. No, they're not going to. I can, I can tell you right now, literally it's someone's job to figure out if a fucking genocide is happening uh, in a random country. I remember listening to a woman talk about her experience at Facebook going over like controversial subject matter in a language that she That's barely understood. That's where we're going. So don't spoil it. That's where Holy we're going. Holy fucking okay. shit. Yeah. Okay. So Jess Myers thinks that the new small tech startups will create innovation and force big companies to change. And her answer to if these big platforms or services don't act morally, if they don't act in the best interest of society, she says just log off or find a new platform. Yep, that's right, guys. She has this dramatic part in the video where she turns off her PowerPoint. She's like, just log off. That's right, everybody. Just don't use Google. Don't use Amazon. Don't use Facebook. Don't like don't use any of these big providers. Don't use Apple. Yeah, I love how that's a that's an option for so many people. They're like, if you're not okay with coal power and the and the world getting destroyed, you should just walk away from your job. It's like, what the fuck are you on about? Like, no, no. The issue is, is that there's things that are greater than myself that are causing difficulties, and I don't have an impact on that. And I need a collective bargaining body to have an impact on how these things run. If it was up to me. I wouldn't have to work in a coal mine, or if it was up to me, I wouldn't have to fucking use Facebook, but here I am. It's the same It's the same thing that they go, why don't you just walk away from it? Because not everybody has that fucking freedom. There's people in the world that the only way they have access to the internet and communication is through Facebook. They buy a phone. We're going there. We're going there. Facebook, Ed, Ed, we're going there. Have... Hold on. Hold on. We're going there. Ooh, um, <laughs> now... That a big bitch. point that she makes, I believe she makes this because I've asterisked this in my notes, is that Section 230 has no neutrality requirements. So while it provides the protections necessary for neutrality to exist, it doesn't require it. So companies are not forced mm -hmm. to comply with regulations to keep content moderated, but by the same token, they are not required to be fair. It is a private company well, in many cases, they're now public companies, but they have their own business. So Facebook can ultimately decide if they want to be left-leaning or right-leaning. If they want to censor your content, they can censor your content. They can do that. Yeah, and it's so much nicer to, to say we need to have net neutrality, especially in that regard. But the difficulty is, is one extreme where they don't regulate anything, is they just go, all right, well, what type of media encourages you to keep clicking? And it's okay. racist Ed, shit. Ed. Oh my god! Okay, this is where we're going. Is this is all where interfere. we're going. Don't worry, we're going here. Okay. I know, I know. But if they do interfere, then you go. Well, you have to give equal talking points 
to the Nazis as well as the super yeah. moderate, yeah. like liberal guy. You like, bring it's up great the, points. Uh, so when I am speaking with some skepticism about Jess Myers and her TED Talk video and not believing everything she's saying, um, there's a reason for that. I'm going to build towards that because I think that there's a, a very uh, a clever innovator, a brilliant mind out there. There's a guy who has done some amazing work that I think makes very strong arguments for why we should be questioning these big companies. And the, the, the one question that if I was going to have like a thesis, this entire episode or this series of episodes, if I had a thesis, it, it might be something like, uh, is there still competition in these internet services? So what I want to do is go back to this original article that I was reading about Section 230, because as I'm sure everybody is aware, um, Donald Trump has lost the election. And so we're all kind of like with pensive breaths, what? holding and waiting to see like, okay, so what does he do? Like on his way out of the office, like what tables does he flip? And so he's fighting this section 230. He's trying to force it. He's using presidential vetoes. He's trying to force people to modify section 230. Now, what's really crazy is that both the left and the right in the United States are wanting to change Section 230, and they're wanting to change it for different reasons. So on the left, they are complaining about Section 230 because it does not require neutrality. So they're worried about censorship. You may have heard some debates or headlines this year about uh, censorship, about how like, well, this platform is left-leaning or right-leaning because they're censoring this voice or their algorithm favors these types of people over these types of people. So that's what the left thinks about 230. Now on the right side, they argue that Section 230 allows hate speech and other like sort of discriminatory types of speech to exist. And they argue that there's more moderation required. Um, and so the quote that I have here, I, I, I have this quote by Jennifer Huddleston because I watched another video about Section 230. And so she was an expert brought into the video to explain about Section 230 and, and what about it. So I will quote her directly here. If you think there's a problem with content moderation on big tech platforms, you could start your own website with a different content moderation policy. So that's the, that's the right-leaning person that says that there shouldn't be any moderation whatsoever. I don't know which direction she leans. Uh, it might depend which way the wind blows. Okay. But... Um, Ultimately, she's kind of saying the same thing that Jess Myers was, which was you can find a different platform, which I don't think is reasonable. Yeah, absolutely. I can just, out of my garage, I can just make the new social network. I can tell everyone to get onto this new YouTube. Somebody needs to make a new YouTube. We really need a new YouTube. To. We really fucking do. Like, if torrenting wasn't illegal, we could just have a fucking website that was torrenting. And then you go, I want to watch this video. And some random asshole who has this computer plugged in goes, okay. And he doesn't care. Costs him a few cents to, to run his computer um, and to have an internet connection. He doesn't give a shit. Why can't we have that? Why can't we have a decentralized media ecosystem where everyone can just watch what they want? And if you support someone, like name any fucking YouTuber, I bet if that person wasn't getting paid through ads... You'd probably buy their merch. You'd probably give them money on Patreon. Like, why the fuck do we need to give Google 90% of the money that they're making through ad revenue, and then they give their 10% well, to the we, creator? we are stuck in a system where everything is controlled by money. I mean, that's pretty obvious. I, I almost feel like that doesn't need to be said. But uh, let's let's keep driving here because we gotta, we're building premises. So we understand what Section 230 is. We know why it exists. Um, we know why people are challenging it, but then now I think we need to talk about the works of Tristan Harris. So, um, in the sources for this. Yes. Tristan, for anyone who's read his name, it's not Tristan, Tristan. it's Tristan. Yes. And I will fight you in a parking lot of a Wendy's if you disagree with me. Um, so most of you have actually probably heard or read or seen something by him because he made the really breakout huge Netflix documentary, which was the social experiment, social dilemma, social the dilemma. social dilemma by Tristan yes. Harris. It was on Netflix and it blew up. 
And then he's done a lot of talks on different podcasts and things. So he has a, a very popular episode that he did on Joe Rogan. Um, I'm going to be linking to probably the one from Joe Rogan. Um, and I'm also going to be linking to some other podcasts from Behind the Bastards. Uh, we, we love that podcast. But they had some interesting uh, deep dives into Mark Zuckerberg and Facebook and how that company runs. But basically, I'm going to be pulling together information from a couple different sources to, to present a, a worldview, or not even really worldview, but a, an idea. Okay, so we've got this big problem. We've got this problem of how open or regulated does the internet need to be, and this Communications Decency Act, when it was published, and when they put in Section 230, was this done correctly? Because we were talking a couple episodes ago about uh, Aristotle, I believe. And he was challenging. Oh, I wasn't even talking with you. That's right. I was talking with Ray. I was talking with Ray about money 2.0. And we were looking at uh, the concept of usury, which was um, whether it is a sin to charge interest for lending somebody money. And Aristotle was a big believer that this was uh, a heinous, horrible crime. It was a sin. It was immoral. And he laid out these sort of logical proofs. And one of the things he said was that if you take something that doesn't exist and then you take an, an artificial concept like money, which is just a token, like a, you're exchanging something for something. If you just take that and then you rub it together and create more money, like if by lending somebody money, then you make more money. But a money is, is a symbol of... A, exchanging it for a good or a service and if you receive that good or service then theoretically in a sense the money doesn't exist anymore it's just always going to be traded or brokered for a good or a service so he's like how can you create something from nothing and so he argued that usury was unnatural and so he laid out all these proofs about why usury was terrible but i had a strong argument against aristotle and the argument that i had against him was when he had all these ideas about interests being you know, immoral and, and not right. He didn't even consider or have a concept of economies of scale in 2020. He never conceded or, or thought about the fact that you could have economies, a worldwide economy where people are trading, making deals every second of every day uh, forever. And when you have an economy of that massive wild scale, you can't not have a system where there's interest because ultimately having access to money or currency it's it's essentially a human right to an extent but it's like if you don't have access to capital to currency there's a lot of things that you can't do and so being able to have access to this capital currency is a service and it is something that i can't even see how we could exist in a society without interest so you know arguments about interest and, and usury aside what i want to pull from that example from that little sidebar was this idea of when this idea was made about usury so when this idea about the communications decency act was made when they made section 230 they were very forward thinking they were very progressive right they they did a lot of things right however did they consider where we could have really been here today like like the current landscape of 2020 and everything happening online nobody i think could have perfectly, you know, looked in their crystal ball and been like, yes, there's going to be these large, hyper uh, multinational companies. There's going to be Google and Amazon and Facebook. Like, I, I don't think anyone could have looked in the crystal ball and seen that. So when we're talking about this legislation and how we're shaping the future of the Internet, everyone who's arguing about these original concepts and, and when the law was first created, I think is is missing a piece of the picture because we can't discount the current landscape today. Well, that's just the American tradition is you generate some laws in the late 1700s and regardless of how well they fucking apply to you today, you still use them. You don't give a shit about uh, how long ago it was. Uh, I think it was... I was just watching a comedy special with Joe Rogan. He's like, if Thomas Jefferson was here today, he'd like look at you and he'd go... What the fuck? You didn't write anything new? What 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 are you going off these fucking rules for? Motherfucker, I had a fucking feather. What are you doing? Uh so yeah, it's the it's completely normal that we write something back in the 30s where 
well, I guess the Red Scare had, hadn't come in, but they're like, hmm, those Nazis are sure, uh, sure have a way with words. Let's make sure that none of our pictures have Jews in them and we can ship it off. In the 30s, they were like, oh, yes, freedom of speech. Someone shouldn't be held accountable. Blah, 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 blah. Like they're probably writing all these things and thinking, oh, yeah, it's it'll be fine. It'll be good. But people in the 30s were fucking idiots. They're all drinking lead. Relative. They were injecting themselves with 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 heroin. To get ghosts out of their blood? They didn't fucking know anything. Don't forget the leeches. God. Leeches, uh, cigarettes, uh, a moment on the lips is forever on the hips or whatever, telling women that they need to smoke cigarettes. Like, things things 100 years ago, like, probably good people, decent people, but people were fucking dumb. They were dumb 20 years ago. They're dumb right now. We're just getting slightly smarter. So aside from me challenging, like, whether laws created in the past are still relevant today. Let's look at some actual more concrete reasoning. And rather than going through all the exact investigative work and, and going through all that, I've already name dropped Tristan Harris. I recommend you go check out his content. So I'm going to summarize some of the things that he talked about because um, yes, we do some research. We're relatively informed, but I'm not going to redo really good work that's already been done by someone else. So Tristan Harris, when he was on his Joe Rogan episode, uh, talked a lot about Facebook's explosive growth model. And this is also talked about in the Behind the Bastards episodes about Facebook, about how Mark Zuckerberg built and founded and, and grew this company around this idea of growth at all costs, explosive growth, like growth, no matter what, we're just going to keep growing. And what does growth for a company like Facebook mean? Well, that means new users right? More people on the platform. And you'll see that eventually growth or their goals change a little bit because I think that Facebook actually hit this like crazy insane number for number of user counts to the point where it stopped making sense for them to pursue explosive growth. And, and now their, their metrics and their algorithms became a little bit more based on how do we keep people on the platform for longer? Because um, then I think it started becoming more about retention than it was about new user signups. But we'll get there. Well, they so, became idiotic robots. They were like, we must get a growth rate of 1.3 minimum, like quarter over quarter. And they kind of kept going. And then some guy put his hand up and went, we have a third of the people on the fucking earth. When do you want this to stop? And they go, oh, that's right. Um, okay, what else can we do? It's like, oh, well, we can make people hate each other. And they go, Yes, yes. When people hate each other, they stay pay attention oh, wait, more. Let's let's get into hate. Let's get into hate. So, um, I am going to put out an idea there, and then I'm going to work it backwards on how we get to this idea. I am going to propose that these multi, like national, these huge platforms like Facebook and Google and Amazon, are so large and have so much utility and are so ubiquitous that they have crossed over from being like a private enterprise and being more like a, a public platform or dare I even say a service. Now, let me go into how we get there. So if you want to talk about why these things might be a service or a, a public platform, I'm kind of hinting at this idea that I think maybe there's some regulation required because of course, if like water is considered an essential human need, uh, it's regulated it to, to some degree, conceivably controlled by the government, and it's ensuring that everybody can get water in most countries for a reasonable price and, and have access to it. Don't, don't, don't worry. I know there's lots of countries that don't have enough water, and it's way too expensive. And I know that Nestle... Sorry, you're, talk, you're talking about needing, needing water. I got to go take a piss real quick. <laughs> oh, okay. You do that. I'm, I'm going to keep talking. You already know this part. Okay. So going from there... Uh, I'm arguing that you need to have um, some, some sort of regulation potentially, and we're going to be talking about that, what kind of regulation that would look like for things like Facebook and Google and Amazon and why they've essentially turned themselves into monopolies. There's not room for competition. Like, let's be honest, no other company is going to improve upon the Amazon formula, come out the gate and have explosive growth and just take down Amazon because Amazon's got a very aggressive strategy designed to quash competition. Amazon is not going anywhere anytime soon. So 
you might look at a company like Facebook and look at its explosive growth and some of the choices that they made in the past, which I'm going to argue that you have to hold companies like Facebook and Amazon and Google, you have to hold these companies to some sort of ethical or moral standards because when they reach this level of ubiquity, when they reach this level of, of scale, where they touch this many human lives is absolutely preposterous for us to protect their right as a, as a private entity, as a corporation to say, oh, you know, just because you're this company, you don't have to have these rules or legislation because that would be big government. And I think that's preposterous. If you have Amazon, which has this insane, you know, millions and millions and millions of people subscribed and using it, you have to have some sort of responsibility there and just relying on the goodwill of the people running the company isn't good enough. Like Jess Myers is an idealist. She thinks that, you know, oh, don't worry, Facebook will figure it out. Just go find a new platform. Well, by looking briefly at some of this bullshit that Facebook did, we're gonna talk about how maybe Facebook left to its own devices isn't going to work out. So one second, um, we're gonna talk about Myanmar. So when you talk about explosive growth at all costs, um, what does that look like? Well, there is this platform, uh, this service called Free Basics. And Free Basics is essentially a, a mission or a, a, a sector of Facebook that was created that was looking to partner with cell phone carriers. And what it was going to do is essentially uh, give people uh, free data to access Facebook. So in a country like Myanmar, uh, the explosive growth and adoption of Facebook was a result of them having free basics in there. People signed up for cell phone plans and instead of paying for like a costly data plan, you would just have like your regular basic plan, which came with Facebook, which got you on the internet. And so the internet that you saw was whatever the fuck was on Facebook. And hopefully some of you, if you haven't heard about this already, are like shocked and horrified. Could you imagine if you couldn't go to any other website and Facebook was your source of truth and, and news about the world and what was happening? It's, it's awful. And so then without even getting into some of the things that Tristan talks about with how the, the Facebook algorithm is corrupt and how it's serving up terrible content, um, essentially the, the results of this aggressive expansion campaign for Facebook in Myanmar resulted in a genocide against the Rohingya people. So there were all these people that were posting hate speech and fear mongering and scapegoating. There's a ton and ton of this, uh, dis discriminatory activity on Facebook in these third world countries against certain groups. These people weren't able to defend themselves, but then it was also able to essentially uh, brainwash and, and change other people's points of views so that it shifted and colored and changed things and facilitated this just massive amount of hate and violence. So yeah, the TLDR of the Myanmar was a kind of a two-pronged thing. Part one was they had these cell phone plans with free basics that gave you know millions of people access to the internet that didn't have access before and you know i say internet with air quotes because although free basics claims that it connected 100 million different people to the internet a lot of those people may have really only had access to facebook for free and then part two of that was when the facebook growth model kind of you know started petering out you now had a model that was designed in an algorithm that selected for retention and time on the platform. And Tristan Harris goes into that quite a bit and talks about how the algorithm is designed to show you content that will keep you on the platform longer. And so that kind of has a bias for uh, extremist content because people get outraged or they say like, oh my God, is there really a flat earthers group on Facebook? And so when you combine that with these third world countries where everyone's forced to use Facebook, that's what they're using, they're posting on, they see the source of truth on the internet as Facebook. And then you've also got this algorithm in the background. It created this perfect storm that allowed this massive amount of hate speech to collect and grow over time and allowed people to facilitate and organize and, and create this entire genocide. It was really quite horrific. And Facebook knew that it was happening for a while and did absolutely nothing about it. It was only when 
the public outcry became large enough that Facebook ever did anything to police that material and to stop their platform being used as a vehicle for hate. Ajax, just just turn it off. The fuck, what the fuck is wrong with you? Just turn off the service. And I guess the other thing uh, that, that I'm going to critique uh, uh, that TED Talk woman about is, well, you could just... Uh, you could just leave the company to its own devices. I'm sure that Facebook had somebody monitoring what the people were talking about or what they were doing and understood in depth the cultural differences between the Rohingyas and the majority of people that live there. And they could read the posts that were happening, right? Well, no, like that's one of the things uh, Tristan talks about, right? Uh, or I believe Behind the Bastards talks about is the fact that um, they didn't even have somebody who spoke the language who knew Facebook's oh. uh, code of conduct there when in some of these countries they went into, they didn't even have a person on their staff who could read the language, who could even potentially begin to moderate posts or enforce the code of conduct. So, so if I hired you right now and I was like, I need you to pour through Icelandic forum posts and tell me which of it is hate speech. How good of a job do you think you're going to be able to do? Well, I would just find all the posts that aren't talking about fish, and those are obviously the hate speech. <laughs> <laughs> oh, absolutely. They're like, oh, they're talking about lambs. So they're probably they're probably making a racist joke or an insensitive joke. Yeah. What? What? How the fuck do you get hired for that position? They go, hi. So what are you? Uh, what are you in here today to do? And and they go. Well, I'm uh, I'm going to be a content moderator. I'm I'm really excited for this position. Like, what do you know about uh, the Rohingya uh, Muslims in in uh, Myanmar, formerly known as Burma? Oh yes, they are they are a cultural. Oh, all right. You just said that you acknowledged that you knew what they were. We can just wipe our hands of this mess. You're responsible for fifty thousand people's lives, give or take. Yeah. So I just really want to lightly touch on that. I think. The best resource for that is the Behind the Bastards episode on Mark Zuckerberg to go into it at length about how um, that kind of thing shakes out. But there is actually an update to this story. That's what I wanted to cover. So I found a new article uh, published by the New York Times. And by the New York Times, I of course mean Time Magazine. And the headline of this article is... Facebook wanted to be a force for good in Myanmar. Now it is rejecting our quest to help with a genocide investigation. And that is, of course, after Facebook was quoted saying, we know we need to do more to ensure we are a force for good in Myanmar. So the story keeps on ticking, right? All this stuff happened back in 2018 and 2016, stuff like that. Here in 2020, Facebook is still proven that they are always taking the moral high ground. To say that some guy who owns a company because he's owning a company and because he's running a company is best suited to tackle problems and to govern himself. If you were to tell anybody who believes that and makes these arguments for these private companies, if you elect Obama and you say, he's going to regulate himself, he's going to figure it out. We don't need checks and balances. They would be up in fucking arms. You can't trust one human being to do anything, period. Like if you tell someone to fucking stock the shelves at a grocery store, 20% of the time, they're going to fuck that up. If you say, keep an eye out for hateful uh, racists that are going to cause a genocide, 20% are going to fuck it up. If that's one guy's job, you need multiple people <laughs> to do this. Now, in June, uh, the Gambia filed an application in U.S. courts uh, looking for information from Facebook that would help it hold uh, people from Myanmar are accountable in the International Court of Justice. And so essentially they were like, hey, we know you took down all this hate speech eventually off your platform, but you, re you recorded records of it. Here's a list of people and names that we need to see information from because we know that they were, were a central part of this genocide. And uh, Facebook has refused to, uh, to do this. So uh, Facebook filed in opposition to Gambia's application, and they said that the request was extraordinarily broad, as well as unduly intrusive or burdensome. Um, and it's only we're allowed to look at that private information of that yeah. one guy. Yeah. Only, uh, only Jerry down in his dark 
uh, dungeon can look through all the private messages of this guy and go, oh shit, he has a point. I guess they are less, they're not people. Like, only one person can look at that and not a fucking human rights tribunal. And Jesus Christ. Facebook says that uh, the Gambia fails to identify counts with sufficient specificity, of which the Gambia uh, names 17 officials, two military units, and dozens of pages and accounts. So well, you uh, you you counted higher than than ten. So yeah, yeah. I don't think we can keep track of that, especially especially if we have computers. There's no way to organize data in such a such an easy way that you could search through it. That's just not in our capabilities, especially for Facebook. I think just talking about Facebook here is a great example of a couple different things. Number one, it's the center of this debate about what responsibility does the platform holder have. For the content on its platform because um, you know I don't have to lay out the exact pieces and, and build to the conclusion I'll let people like behind the bastards and, and Tristan do that but what they've made quite clear in my mind is the fact that this platform was used as a force for evil and the inaction or potentially even just the the policy of growth and and profit and pursuit of money is what allowed these horrible atrocities to occur. And, and what I was kind of in the tail end of saying when you just came back, Ed, was that when you have a platform so ubiquitous that it ch touches this many millions of people, that it's involved in this many millions of people's lives, it's absolutely asinine to not say that it has any regulations, to say that it doesn't have any ethical or, or moral uh, requirements like for a long time Google had the don't be evil right yeah so that sort of argument works to a certain extent but I'm gonna I'm gonna give you a bit of a counter argument if I sell a man a gun it's up to him what he's gonna do with that gun he can use it for hunting he can use it for protecting his family if I sell my gun if I sell my guns to this family they can have a fun picnic where they can all shoot things together they can do whatever they want it's me as a supplier that's providing a product. It's up to them. So if I sell a gun to uh, to Al-Qaeda, I don't know what they're going to use it for. If I sell a gun to a child or a snake or a bear, doesn't fucking matter. I'm just providing a service. Yeah. How dare you try to regulate who I can sell guns to? Yeah, how how dare anybody regulate? However... What if, what if the free market says that they want a hollow pointer incendiary rounds? I can just give out. I can sell. I'm... It's, Hey, if there wasn't demand for it, I wouldn't be making it. So if I'm going to sell murder by the bullet, who the fuck's to say that I shouldn't? Especially on an international market when business is good. If we were playing a party game, the celebrity on your forehead would be Nicolas Cage in Lord of War. But seriously, um, I think people have a responsibility, right? When we talk about celebrities, when we talk about people who have millions of followers online, we say, well, you can't just tell your followers uh, personal information about somebody or or sort of incite them to violence, right? So there's all these cases where, you know, uh, fan groups of certain celebrities or internet personalities have gone out and harassed people or, or done bad things. And so there's been this outcry that, well, if you have this large following, if you have this impact on these many millions of lives, you have to act with a certain uh, level of morality or, or ethics. You have to not just say whatever shit comes to mind because you have the potential to create change in the world. So in the same vein, uh, the gun salesman has the potential to create change in the world. So do we just say to the gun salesman, to the arms dealer, well, guns are unbiased, guns are neutral, like they're, they're a force for good or force for bad, who knows? Like, no. We have rules and regulations about how, who can get guns, what kind of licenses they need, what kind of training they need, right? In some countries, it's a lot harder to get guns than it is in other ones, right? So now we're creating this whole debate about the arms. Like, is it okay to own uh, arms for, for sport and for practice, or is it bad? And I think ultimately, if you're going to envision a, an age, a time when the world was more enlightened, when we had more sophistication and we got rid of more of the, you know, quote unquote, blue collar and, and labor based jobs, uh, I like to ascribe to the thought of the Jedi, right? Which is this idea that 
they are, they are so sophisticated that some weapons are beneath them. And is it possible as a society we could ever get to a point where you look back on a gun and you say, well, that's an inelegant weapon. That is a weapon, uh, a relic of a bygone era. We don't need to fuck around with guns anymore because we on that new shit. And I think that it's it's such an issue that we have that we're afraid of regulation. And I understand uh, the distaste for regulation as like a, a free human being. I think we're both relatively free. We can do what we want. But any raise of the question of regulation does give us some pause. That's fine. But maybe we should have morality and ethics regulations in regards to businesses. Maybe we just want to put them on large businesses. Maybe we want to say, okay, if you make net of whatever per year or you have this many employees, you have to have a minimum ethics or more morality threshold. I think that we would run into weeds if we tried to, to create that because we'd put in a bunch of shit that was like necessary equality, necessary payback for certain things. I think it could be basic enough that says if you do something, something happens under your watch where you knowingly ignore wide-scale death or destruction or the upheaval of the cultural fabric of a society you will be held accountable i think i think it was in in robert evans behind the bastards where he looks at the nuremberg trials and he goes there wasn't a fucking law for what these people did but we got together as an international community and went this is bad and people need to be punished they don't need to get need to be punished by being charged a few percent of their profits, they need to be punished in a legitimate, scary way so people don't do this. If you knowingly joke about being responsible for all of the Middle East because you're the head of this department in Facebook, and that burdens you and that puts weight on you, and you don't raise a flag about it, I think your company should be held responsible for deaths. Like, they're. I know it's absurd to say that, that, uh, that we want to put a dollar amount on human life, but human life is worth something. It's not worth less. Like, it's bullshit that we have this idea that they go, well, why would they get charged? Because they didn't pull the trigger. It's like, yeah, but when a fucking group of people are, like, posting and saying, we're going to round up the boys and we're going to go on a pogrom and we're going to go kill a bunch of exes, and you don't fucking alert the police or alert the government or alert the international community, and you just sit on your fucking hands like there has to be some accountability all right here's the problem with gun debate i'm going to boil it down it comes down to the diffusal of individual responsibility if you are the gun salesman and you say i'm going to sell somebody a gun i don't know what they're going to do with it it's not my problem that is you not taking responsibility for your actions you are selling a device that can be used to murder people a gun can be uh, a cause of evil in the world. And in the same vein that the, you know, people in the Holocaust, that, that many Germans arguably were a part of the instrument of evil that allowed that thing to happen, many of them were just following orders. They had that diffusal of responsibility. They said, I'm just following the orders of my superior officer who's following the orders of his officer and so on and so forth. Everyone felt like they weren't doing anything wrong because they were just following orders. When people stop taking responsibility for their actions, it allows evil shit to happen. And so in the same vein, the gun salesman, when he does not take responsibility for his actions, he allows evil to happen. He allows people to take that gun and go kill people. And so when there's Americans that argue that everyone in the world should have a gun, everyone in America should have a gun, it's our right, all of us should own guns, would that person still feel that way if they were the arms dealer and they were selling guns and they just had, you know, some very unsavory, super unqualified, like very clearly malicious or sketchy people come to their store? If he had, you know, the, the worst type of people come to the store and want to buy guns, is he still going to live and die and say, oh, yeah, 100%, we still need to give everyone guns. No, absolutely not. If you had that entire wisdom, that breadth of experience, you'd go, oh, my gosh, this is a terrible idea. And it's the diffusal of individual responsibility. And the problem is that we 
treat corporations in so many ways like an individual, but then we also give them exemptions that we only give to companies and not to individuals. And you have this horrible series of events arising from you know a lot of individuals within Facebook not acting like they had responsibility because of course they're just doing their job. And I think the problem to all this is that we just need to find a way to put responsibility back within each and every one of us. And maybe the answer is we all uh, convert to existentialism. Anyways, this is going to be sort of the segue where we leave the realm of discussing hard facts and stories and we go into more of the discussion and conjecture. So please join us for part two where we continue the debate and the discussion of section 230. This has been Ed and Ajax. Thanks for listening.